Welcome to Amplify, a podcast about the future of Europe, produced by the DCU Brexit Institute. We cover the latest developments in European integration, including the Conference on the Future of Europe and the Next Generation EU Post-Pandemic Recovery Plan. I'm your host, Ian Cooper. This episode is a conversation with Daniel Freund, who is an MEP with the Greens EFA Group. Daniel was a member of the executive board of the Conference on the Future of Europe, and that is the main subject of our talk. But first, I asked him about two recent developments, the Qatargate scandal in the European Parliament and the EU's decision to withhold funds from Hungary due to its violations of the rule of law. This is Daniel Freund, MEP. I'm here with uh, Daniel Freund, MEP, and uh, we want to talk about the Conference on the Future of Europe. But before that, I we were supposed to have an interview with uh, Daniel um, last month, um, but um, we had to postpone at the last minute because of the, the Qatargate scandal had broken out and uh, Daniel was very busy dealing with that. Daniel's well known as a fighter against corruption inside and outside the European Parliament. Um, Daniel, welcome. Thanks for having me. Um, do you want to say, tell us a bit about uh, Qatargate. Um, now, I know that that was, you weren't personally involved, but I know that you were in, you reacted strongly to it. Were you surprised at the level of corruption? I was not surprised by uh, people trying to bribe members of parliament because that we have seen before. And particularly uh, dictators with lots of cash uh, have done this before. We've had the uh, caviar diplomacy from Azerbaijan with uh, many millions trying to influence us. Uh, we know that Russia has tried uh, in the past to undermine European democracy in, in all sorts of ways. So, so that wasn't surprising, but that colleagues of mine were willing to take bags of cash uh, for uh, taking apparently a different stance on, on Qatar, the human rights situation and whatnot. Um, it's, it's, it's outrageous, really, uh, to, to see the extent and also a bit the how, how archaic uh, they're, they're, they're doing it, but good that the Belgian authorities caught on to it and that uh, people are now sitting in jail and are awaiting trial for for what they did. Um, just briefly to follow up about that, I know that your party group, the Greens, are uh, quite have quite strong positions on uh, trying to root out corruption. You want to say what do you think some of the institutional solutions to that problem might be? Well, there's clearly a, a problem. Uh, what Transparency International calls a culture of impunity uh, in the Parliament, and I think a bit wider also in the EU institutions, and that we need to fix. People should not get away with it when they do break the rules. We have seen that far too often in the past. So it's good that this time the Belgian authorities are involved, and it's not just for the internal dealings in the parliament. Nevertheless, I think this is the occasion uh, to revisit the rules, to close some of the loopholes that we have. Generally, there's you know, there's a lot of good rules on transparency, on lobbying and so on, but we need to make sure that those rules are actually applied and enforced and that when people break those rules that they get sanctions. Um, if, if you ask me about the three main points that need to happen now, 
I think so far third country governments uh, or third countries in general like Qatar are exempt from all the transparency rules that we have for companies, for NGOs, for labor unions. So they need to go on the lobby register meetings uh, with those governments uh, and officials need to be declared the same way that we declare meetings with Volkswagen, Ikea or, or McDonald's. And the second thing is that we need independent oversight over the rules. Uh, so far, there's a self-policing by, by all the institutions, parliament, checking on parliamentarians, commissioners on commissioners and so on. But we need independent oversight uh, for, for that. And the third point that I would mention is um, asset declarations. So if someone like Eva Kiley has so much criminal energy to take bags of cash, okay, uh, but we can, with good rules, make it much less fun uh, or much less easy to spend that money. And asset declarations, I think, is the best way uh, to, to go about that. So, so we should introduce asset declarations for members of parliament when we come in, when we go out, uh, that we declare our assets, uh, what we own, uh, apartments, houses, cars, art, whatever. And then if there is an, uh, a suspicious amount of wealth growth uh, over time, then that points to uh, payments being made that shouldn't have been made. Okay, so that's that's an excellent answer. Very very comprehensive. Um, the, from one sort of story of brazen corruption to another, um, I just also wanted to briefly ask you about uh, the latest developments in the in the rule of law crisis as it relates to Hungary, and um, and I understand that um, that there's been a bit of a victory for the people who are trying to um, trying to impose some kind of um, uh, sanctions on uh, countries that uh, that flagrantly violate the rule of law, in particular Hungary. Do you want to talk about that and what happened just last month? Yeah, it's um, it's it's good to see that uh, for the first time there is consequences for for those governments, for those member states that uh, violate the rule of law, that have rampant corruption. Uh, the, there was a decision in the council, a broad majority, uh, actually broader than, than, than we would have expected, uh, but all governments except for the Polish and the Hungarian one agreed uh, that um, a large part of, of the EU funds to Hungary uh, should, be, should be frozen until they implement the necessary reforms to restore an independent judiciary, to restore uh, a proper fight against corruption in, in the country. This is something that I myself, but many people in the parliament have been fighting for for years. Uh, and it was good to see that uh, now finally this, this has happened. Uh, I, I was one of the negotiators for this new tool, the so-called conditionality mechanism. Uh, this was the first time now that we used it. Uh, and uh, we have now frozen a, a chunk of, um, of the Hungarian structural funds. Uh, so, so lots of money that should actually go uh, to Hungary and particularly to Hungarians uh, is currently being withheld because this money is not getting to Hungarians. It's being stolen uh, by Viktor Orban, by his family, by his close friends. Uh, and until that stops, um, there is now uh, a big chunk of money being withheld. So that's a great success, I think, for the European Union. Yes. And, um, you know, hats off to you for your personal involvement in that fight. I know it wasn't just you. It was a it was a major kind of effort on many, many 
part of many people. Uh, what do you think the next steps are going to be in relation to that issue? Well, we, we have to see now whether uh, Viktor Orban and the Hungarian government uh, will will now finally do what uh, we've been asking from them for, for years, that they, they do the necessary reforms, they reinstate uh, an independent justice system, uh, and that they... Uh, well, finally do something about the rampant corruption. Whether that will actually happen, uh, well, time, time, time will tell. I, I, I fear a bit that, I mean, the whole power system of Viktor Orban, of course, relies on distributing money to, to, to lots of people. So if, if all of a sudden he, he stops doing that, I'm not sure whether, whether the, the Orban's uh, system can, can hold, but we we will see, but uh, until there is no change, uh, there there is a big of big chunk of money that is uh, not 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 going to the Hungarian government. Okay, well, thank you for that. Um, now let's turn to the main uh, main reason that uh, I wanted to talk to you today, and that is to talk about the conference on the future of Europe. Of course, now that was. Uh, eight months ago that the Conference on the Future of Europe concluded. So I'm asking you to cast your mind back a little bit. Um, first of all, I mean, you are on the um, governing board of the uh, of the conference. And so you were involved in the setting up of it, the design of it. Um, and uh, one point that you insisted on uh, was having citizens involved. Do you want to talk a bit about that? Yeah, so... If, if you look at uh, the European Union over over the last 10 years or so, we, we have gone through crisis after crisis, right? We have had the Euro crisis, we have had migration, we have had Brexit, we have had Corona. And now the latest one, of course, is, is the horrible war in, in, in Ukraine. And I think lots of citizens see, uh, you know, that, that those kind of issues we can only solve together as, as Europeans, but that the European Union in its current state is not ideally positioned to actually solve these. And some of these crises have dragged on for, for, for a decade uh, before really being addressed. So we, we had that conversation in the conference, how, how should we change the union? And I thought, you know, my lesson learned from the last time we, we reformed the European Union, if you think back to the constitutional treaty and then what turned out to be the Treaty of Lisbon in the end, you know, that was a painful exercise. There were referenda in, in France and in the Netherlands that ultimately derailed the constitution. Something was preserved in the Treaty of Lisbon. But since then, when... I and others mentioned, you know, there's additional reforms necessary of the union. People looked at us a bit like, you're, you're slightly insane. We're never going to do that ever again. So our idea of how to relaunch a debate on the necessary reforms is, well, we need to bring the citizens in from the outset. And the best example that I have seen in the last few years of doing that is actually what the Irish have done with the citizens' assemblies on marriage for all and on the right uh, to to abortion. Two issues that had been hugely controversial in Ireland and that sort of in the normal political process were stuck for decades. But then they brought randomly selected but representative citizens together, discussed it, came up with a proposal, and those proposals found overwhelming majorities in referenda in, in, in Ireland. So the idea was, 
let's copy that good example of, of citizens' assemblies that we have not only seen in Ireland, but in a number of other member states as well. Uh, and let's try bring Europeans together from all the 27 member states, 24 languages, but that are representative of, of Europeans as a whole when it comes to age, gender, uh, their backgrounds, uh, whether they come from cities or, or the countryside and all that. And, and we did that. And, and I think that was a huge success uh, to bring all these citizens together and to discuss, you know, what do you think how, how the future of the European Union should look like? Which issues should it address? Uh, and, 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 and what changes are necessary? And there's a long list of proposals that the citizens came up with. And then in the second stage of the conference, the citizens discussed their proposals with members of all national parliaments, with members of all governments, with members of civil society. So from environment NGOs to labor unions. And then on the 9th of May last year, uh, the final result of all of that debate uh, came out. And I think so far, so, so successful. We have 325 proposals on the table on how the union should change. And many of the big you know, the big recommendations, particularly that um, that unanimity decisions are a problem in the European Union, that we can, you know, if we want to decide for 450 million Europeans, you cannot have one head of state and government block everything, like Viktor Orban, for example, has done uh, numerous times over the last year, uh, you know, weakening sanctions against Russia, uh, blocking uh, a global minimum tax deal so that large corporations pay a little bit more than the 0.005% that Apple pays on its billions of profit in the European Union at the moment. So, so that needs to change. Now, the, the question since the 9th of May has, of course, been what happens with these recommendations now, because I have been calling for, you know, I mean, the conference itself was a success, but we can't just send these recommendations now to the House of European History to some archive and say, look, very good recommendations. Uh, they go on a shelf somewhere. No, we need to turn those recommendations into reality. We need to change the union according to the proposals uh, that were made by the citizens. and. This has at least found a majority in the European Parliament. For, for the first time ever, uh, we started a procedure to, to change the treaties. We have that uh, somewhat bizarre situation where me as a member of this parliament, uh, contrary to, to any member of parliament in a member state, I'm not allowed to, to propose a law. My colleagues in the German Bundestag or in the, uh, in the Swedish parliament or in the Portuguese parliament, they can all propose laws, I cannot but I can propose treaty changes. So that's one area where we have the right of initiative. So we did it. Uh, and with a large majority already last June, uh, Parliament said, look, we need to reopen the treaties. We need to reopen the debate on the fundamentals of, of the union, such as uh, getting rid of, of unanimity decisions in, in important areas um, so, so that we can actually follow those recommendations of citizens. Well, <clears throat> thank you. That's very interesting. I mean, our, a lot of our audience is Irish. And so what you say about citizens' assemblies will be music to their ears. Um, what you say about uh, reform of the, of the harmonization of tax might not be so popular in Ireland. And of course, in Ireland, people are very wary about treaty change because uh, any treaty change will almost certainly involve a referendum in Ireland, which is also often a tricky prospect. 
Um, just going back briefly to um, the conference, do you think, I'm just thinking about those citizens' assemblies in Ireland, you know, they were very much focused on a single issue, um, like marriage equality or reproductive rights. Um, and that was quite different from the conference in the future of Europe, which was really about a huge grab bag of issues. And in a way, the wanted to leave it open-ended for citizens to kind of contribute and decide what was important. And another difference um, is that in Ireland, the citizen assembly would make its decision, then pass it over to the politicians, and the politicians would deliberate and make the decision. Whereas in in uh, the conference on the future of Europe, you actually, as you meant, as you said, the citizens themselves actually um, came to the plenary and were advocates of the um, of the of their own ideas, um, and actually had a direct exchange with uh, with national parliamentarians, representative of national governments, and representative of the European Parliament. That kind of process, quite a quite a long and involving, quite sprawling process. Do you think that worked? So I, when when we were discussing how we set this all up, I I always tried to to follow the Irish example as as close as possible. I would have preferred uh, to to have a you know a more focused debate on 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 a on fewer issues. Um, the decision that was taken was was differently. I think, given how badly this could have gone, it it went surprisingly well given the scope of of the debate in the end. That that despite basically being able to put any and all topics on the table, citizens managed at the end to come forward uh, with 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 good proposals in all these different areas that that we discussed. You know, after and and we had four citizens assemblies that. Uh, you know, cut up topics in in four broad areas, and then afterwards, when when the citizens started discussing this with the politicians and and civil society and so on, we broke it down into ten different areas. So you had one group on migration, you had one on foreign policy, one on democracy, one on health, and 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 so on. And I think that still worked reasonably well to at least identify the the most important uh, issues in 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 each area. The big question for me remains, and there we have the the maybe the biggest difference with what happened in Ireland. In Ireland, from the outset, it was clear, you know, this wasn't just a, a fun debate club, but at the end of the day, if things went well, there would be a, a vote that that all Irish could participate in and and say, you know, is this now a good proposal on how marriage uh, should be defined in the Irish constitution or, or not, right? Um, and, and we didn't have that prospect in, in, in the European Union. It was, it was a bit unclear from the outset what would actually happen with those proposals at the end. We, from the side of the European Parliament, had always been quite clear, you know, we take this seriously, we want to do something with it. Unfortunately, the representatives of governments uh, have have taken a very different approach. Actually, from the outset, from the day that we launched uh, sort of the website of the conference and, and invited all citizens in Europe, come with your proposals uh, so that we can discuss them, 14 governments wrote a letter together and said, uh, look, none of this is uh, legally binding. We're, we're not going to take any of this seriously. And we don't want to 
have any treaty change in this anyway. So they were kind of telling citizens, look, tell us your ideas, but before actually you tell us, go consult with your favorite EU lawyer that tells you whether this specific idea requires a change of the treaty or whether it can be done uh, uh, by, by a different uh, instrument. And that's just not how you discuss with citizens. You know, you ask them, what do you think should be changed? And then it's up to us politicians to figure out what's the best way to do it. Do we need to change this law? Do we need a new law? Do we need an international binding treaty? Or what's the way to, to do it? That shouldn't be up for citizens to, to come up with that idea. So, and in a way that's, that's still where we're stuck today uh, because the parliament, as I said, has voted, we, we want a treaty change procedure. We have made some proposals on, on what should uh, change. But we need the governments to agree to opening uh, to opening the treaties. And, and the governments, in a way, have had our proposal on the table since June and haven't done anything with it. So what we need now is to build up pressure uh, together with those citizens that participated, but any citizen really that is interested in the future of Europe, together with civil society, that we push governments to say, look, we're going to take this conference seriously. We're going to take the recommendations, the results that came out seriously, and not just ignore uh, what a representative sample of, of Europeans thinks uh, the future should look like. Well, that sounds uh, like a very, very interesting proposal. And uh, and I know that your time is limited today. And so I could probably, uh, can, I, can I indulge with one last question? Yes. Um, let me give a concrete example. I'm thinking about, um, I mean, it's quite an obvious example. I'm thinking about treaty change. I mean, you talked about unanimity, and that's obviously really important. Um, another one is the budget, right? And so the uh, next generation EU, uh, the this new post-COVID uh, uh, recovery fund was, was created using existing... Um, using the existing treaty provisions um, and it's designed to be temporary. Um, and of course the European parliament didn't have a lot of say in, uh, in how, and when that was put together, uh, even though the European parliament is obviously the, a, a parliament is supposed to be the master of the purse in a, in a political system. Um, so um, would you envision some kind of, um, would you prioritize some kind of uh, treaty change that would involve giving greater fiscal capacity to the European Union and a greater role from the for the European Parliament in um, executing that fiscal capacity? Absolutely. I, I, I think you know beyond uh, the the change in 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 unanimity voting, I think this is the the second big area uh, and well, to some degree, you're talking to a member of the European Parliament, so easy to say, yeah, we need more power. But this is not about me or or, or my colleagues. As, as you said, uh, in, in any functioning democracy, uh, the budget and, and the important decision in, in, in politics are taken in Parliament following a broad debate, a public debate, and then a public vote on, on, on the direction that, that should be taken. And you know, if you make the comparison <clears throat> with the United States, for example, if the U.S. budget were decided by a unanimous vote of, of the 50 governors of the state, 
I mean, uh, th there would never be a budget. And, and still, you know, I mean, we have managed so far with the unanimous vote of the 27, but it is a ludicrous way of, of, of making, making this budget. So obviously we should change that. Uh, the European Union uh, should have its own resources so that we get away from this horrible debate of, well, my country is a net contributor or a net recipient of, of, of EU funds. It should basically be, you know, if, for example, large companies that have a huge advantage from the European single market, you know, and much more so than tiny uh, companies, you know, your bookstore on the corner is not using the single market, but Amazon is. They're selling uh, their books all, all over the European Union. So I think those companies that have a special advantage from having a market of 450 million Europeans and, and, and 27 countries, well, they can pay a little extra uh, for, for that advantage. Why would they then not contribute a little bit to the running of that market? So, so that's precisely what we mean by, you know, the European Union should be able to tax for example, large companies that profit from the union, uh, so so that they uh, contribute also a bit to to those advantages that we all get from being able to travel freely and uh, to to have additional rights and and and, and so on. Uh, and absolutely, those require treaty change, and those are things that we should address uh, with this urgent treaty reform. All right. Well. That's an excellent uh, point on which to end our conversation. Thank you so much, Daniel Freund, for talking to me today. Thanks. Have a nice day. Bye. You've been listening to Amplify, which is made with the support of the European Union's Erasmus Plus program and the Irish Department of Foreign Affairs Communicating Europe initiative although these institutions do not necessarily endorse its contents. It is produced by the DCU Brexit Institute in association with the Jean Monnet Centre of Excellence, Rebuild. The host is Ian Cooper. The producer is Lucrezia Rossi. Music by Doug Romano. <laughs>